Spurgeon, the great preacher of England, said this. He said years ago that we are sure that men are not saved for the sake of their works, yet we are equally sure that no man will be saved without them. Very true. Spurgeon said faith and works are bound up in the same bundle. I like how he said that. They're bound up in the same bundle. Certainly, we would share that heart together that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're, we wouldn't argue with that. That's true all over the Scripture. However, the Scripture also says that salvation that is by grace alone is never truly alone. It is accompanied by works or by deeds. In fact, we've said that salvation is always by faith apart from works. That's the root of our salvation. But we also note that salvation by faith always results in works, and that's the fruit of our salvation. And so as we walk into James chapter 2, in verses 14 through 26, his argument is not that works must be added to faith for salvation, but that genuine faith, if you will, reproduces works. It produces deeds of righteousness. Do you remember that song? I don't know. I think... I'm thinking everybody grew up and sang it, and I don't want to sing it for you this morning, but I think you know it. If you're saved and you know it, then what? Clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, then say amen. And I might miss a stands in here. But one of them was, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely, what? Show it. That's what James is talking about. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Now, James is asking the question as we approach the text, what are the marks of genuine faith? Or to say it another way, what is the nature of saving faith? And he's giving us these tests of faith, and we've walked through, through them. You can see that there on your bulletin, on the notes, it's tested in trial. It's tested in temptation. It's tested in our obedience to the Word of God. It's tested in our reaction to partiality. And now we come to that fifth component of this wonderful book, the relationship between faith and works. Now let me read the text for you as you look into it. Follow with me as I read from 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes in, we can stop there, to the illustration of both Abraham and Rahab. Now, the key over this entire section is verse 14. Look at it one more time. What good is it, or literally, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says, and there was the key point, he has faith but does not have works, and then the rhetorical question, can that faith save him? And the answer that James will usher forth is clearly not. It cannot save him. In fact, it says there, verse 14, and he just leaves it open. It's to be answered in the negative. If you glance down at verse 17, here's his theme. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Look again at verse 20. You foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Look down in your Bible at 2.26, for as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James states here that a living faith is an active faith, and conversely, a passive faith or unfruitful faith saves no one. Now, over the course of the years, and I'll bring this to you, there has been a debate that has been brewing, and I don't think it's a debate at all, but there are certain theologians that would espouse what we would call um, a no-lordship position. And when I say a no-lordship position, you could just, it might be a simple way to define it, but fair enough, it is to embrace Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. In other words, there are people who say you can be a Christian and embrace Jesus as your Savior, but you don't necessarily have to embrace Him as your Lord. As long as you embrace intellectually that He died for you, that's enough. If you begin to add deeds to it or works to it, then you take away from grace. And so this no-lordship position depicts a faith that is antithetical to works, antithetical to obedience, or any submission uh, to God's Word. Okay. Now this, if I put it this way, no-lordship differs dramatically from what James is saying in the Word of God on the nature of saving faith in his very epistle that he wrote. Now I put some quotes up here on the screen. Maybe you can just see what this position expresses. Saving faith is simply being convinced or giving credence to the truth of the gospel. I have there SGS. That is not a nonprofit ministry that stands for so great a salvation. This is the teaching of Charles Ryrie. Okay? Charles Ryrie, longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, just basically said saving faith is simply being convinced of giving credence. In other words, all you have to do is be convinced that God is God and Jesus died on the cross for you. You just have to, it is confidence that Christ can remove guilt and give eternal life. But then he makes statements like this not a personal commitment to him. In other words, you can embrace Christ intellectually, comprehend that, 
but you don't have to make a personal commitment to him. That's what he says. Next slide. It says this. Submission to Christ's authority as Lord is not germane to the saving transaction. In other words, you do not have to submit because if you tell somebody they need to submit, you're adding to the gospel. He goes on to say that neither dedication nor willingness to be dedicated to Christ are issues in salvation. Next slide. It says this. Just, I just want you to understand what we're contending for here. Christians may fall into a state of lifelong category or carnality. A category of carnal Christians who continuously live like the unsaved. It exists in the church. Now, I've known people like this. They come forward. They pray. They verbalize. Walk away from the faith for 20 30, 40 years, there's a group of people that can intellectually comprehend but never submit to him, and it exists in the church. Next slide says this. Just giving you, prolonged sin is no reason to doubt the reality of one's faith. Page 48. A believer may utterly forsake Christ and come to the point of not believing. Those who have once believed are secure, what? Forever even if they turn away. That's quite a bold statement. Bold statements. Next slide. Here it is. Trusting Jesus means believing the saving facts about Him. AF, not a nonprofit. That's another work by a man by the name of Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges um, taught at Dallas Seminary. But he says trusting Jesus means believing the facts about him. To believe those facts is to appropriate the gift of eternal life. Then he adds this. Those who add any suggestion of commitment have departed from the New Testament ideal of salvation. Now you say, why would he say that? Well, he so wants to preserve grace that if you begin to add any sense of commitment to the Lord, you've taken away from grace which I would say is a misunderstanding of grace. And then you, you don't find that in the New Testament. Here's also what he says. Next slide. He says, submission is not in any sense a condition for eternal life, which in my mind is really hard. I'm thinking of the rich young ruler who came running up to Jesus. Jesus didn't say, as long as you embrace the facts. He said, I'll tell you what you must do. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That man went away grieved. So you see the difference is calling on the Lord means appealing to him. It's hard to grasp what they say. Not submitting to him. Amazing. Next slide. Nothing guarantees that a Christian will love God. Wow, I mean, if if you ask me what a definition of a Christian is, We do love God. Salvation does not necessarily even place one in a right relationship of fellowship with God. Wow. Next slide. Uh, Zane Hodges says this. All who claim Christ by Savior or by faith as Savior, even those involved in serious or prolonged sin, should be assured that they belong to God come what they may. I don't think so. I think Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you what? Be in the faith. Jesus said many, many 
will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform many miracles? And I will say to you, depart from me, you who practice what? Sin. But here, you could see the different position. Next slide. It is dangerous, uh, here Zane Hodges said, and destructive to question the salvation of a professing Christian. The New Testament writers never questioned the reality of their reader's faith. I'm not sure that you can't read your Bible and say that, at least as we've been through 1 John. They often question the profession that was empty of a lifestyle that manifested that. Next slide. Uh, It is possible to experience a moment of faith that guarantees heaven for what? Eternity. You understand what he's saying. I mean, if your kid's in Awana, and at four years old, they trust Christ and come home and tell you and you rejoice with them. As long as they experience for a moment that faith, it guarantees heaven for eternity. He goes on to say, then they turn away permanently and live a life that is utterly barren of any spiritual fruit. He says it's possible. Genuine believers might even cease to name the name of Christ or confess Christianity altogether. In fact, Zane Hodges would actually say you could become an atheist as long as at one time you professed some kind of faith in Jesus Christ. So you understand that when we come to the book of James, this is vital for our church. Vital. In other words, I don't ever want you to miss a week because it's that important. Because I love you. And because I love your kids, and as I'm with our families in the week, and with your children, and with your grandchildren, it's so very, very, very important that we dive into the Word of God. I would say to you, and I don't mean this to sound in any way condescending, okay? I've been here for a year and a half. And I'm not really talking about our church. But if there's one thing that just strikes me, being in the San Joaquin Valley in general, is the utter lack of discernment amongst people who claim Christ. If you just pinpoint, you say, Scott, you got something that you just feel like you're on the pulse of? Yeah. An utter lack of discernment all around the guise of spirituality. And when I read my New Testament, I think it looks different than how so many people express it. So enough for me to say that I love you and that I want to come to the text because out of the many things that I want our church to be, it was put into practice yesterday. But I want us to be a discerning church And here is a passage that stands so strong and demands a serious look for us as a local church. He describes for us the nature of saving faith. You say, well, how do we understand it? Here's how we understand it. He provides, we said last week, four illustrations that define the nature of saving faith. He exposes two examples of a fruitless, if you will, non-productive faith. And he said that against two examples of a genuine faith, Abraham and Rahab. And the question is for you, is what kind of faith 
do you possess? What kind of faith do you possess? Now, the first illustration, you, just, you can see it there on your notes. We don't have to go through it again. You touch on the, on the video, the web, if you, didn't, if you missed that. It's that artificial compassion of a dead faith. James asked there, as we've looked at verse 14, can that faith save him? And then he gives the illustration. If a brother or sister is poorly clad, clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things necessary for the body, what good is that? So here is the artificial, it's fake, compassion of a dead faith. James says, can that faith save him? And the answer, no, faith that does not demonstrate compassion toward a brother and sister in need is not real. It's artificial. That's why I look down at verse 17. He said, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. Remember when John said this when we studied 1 John together? Whoever, John the Apostle says, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And John said to us little children, do not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. In fact, artificial compassion, apart from action, is a dead faith. And here the Word of God tells us that compassion is one of the evidences, is one of the fruits of saving faith. Now, now follow the argument, okay? He finished that little illustration in verse 17. And it's likely that someone was contending with James' assessment in 15 through 17. Namely, that faith, if it's by itself, is dead, And so he brings us to a second illustration, okay? We'll call this the artificial confession of dead faith. It's artificial, it's not real. It's a confession, you know, out of the mouth, but it's a a dead faith. But but look, look at the text again in verse 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, you'll note there as you look at verse 18 that someone will say, and James identifies an objector. Someone will say. Uh, we, the theologians call that the interlocutor, the imaginary interlocutor, or we would just say the objector. And the objector, at least it appears in verse 18, alleges that faith and works are separable. In other words, you have faith and I have works. Now, as you look at verse 18, okay, there is a grammatical issue in verse 18 upon which pages have been written. And the reason there's a grammatical issue, look at it again in your Bible, okay, but someone will say, now you'll note this, in quotations, I have that in the ESV, where it says, and you'll note the quotations, you have faith and I have works, end of quotation. Now, the hard part is that in that is that there's no quotation marks in the Greek, okay? If you just picked up the scroll, okay, you would not see quotation marks 
in the Greek, so they're supplied, obviously, because someone is saying that, and I think we understand that. And the question that would arise in verse 18 is this question, who is the someone? Verse 18, when it says, but someone will say, who is that someone? Who is, in verse 18, the you? You have faith. Who, in verse 18, is the I? And I have, you know, um, it says their works. Uh, Someone has called this verse one of the most problematic in the New Testament. In fact, the question that arises in adding these quotation marks is to discern where the words of the objector end or do they keep going? Now, if you're looking and and I'm looking at the ESV, you can see the quotation marks stop at that first line. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Other translations might take that quotation all the way to the end of verse 18. Now, I would tell you that citing with the ESV and many other translations, I just think it finishes after the first line of the verse. In other words, here's the statement. Here is the statement being made. Look at it again. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. End of quotation mark. Okay? I think it just finishes right there. Now, before us, as we walk through this text, is an illustration of the artificial confession of dead faith. And what James does in the, in the following sequence is set forth the contention of the objector. What does the objector say? Then James enters back in and challenges the objector's statement. Then, thirdly, you might say, he issues a correction to the objectors and his readers. And you can see that they're right there in your notes. There's the contention, there is the challenge, and there is the correction. Let's walk into the text. Very, very important. And I don't ever mean to be so intense with you, okay? I mean, kind of always intense. But, um, but listen, I, I care about you. I care about our children. I care about your great-grandchildren. And as long as the Lord gives me breath in this pulpit, this is crucial. I mean, could there not be anything worse than standing before the Lord, thinking you're in the kingdom and have him say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness? That's got to be the ultimate deception. I don't want us to be deceived. And when we equip you, I want to make sure you're equipped with answers from the word of God. So let's tie in there to first the contention of the objector. The objector just states this as you look at verse 18. You have faith and I have works. And I might add that the objector would say in between the white spaces, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? This is the contention of the objector. I heard what you just say, James. You have faith and I have works or someone has faith and someone has works. Maybe the the objector, I think the spirit is this. I'm emphasizing faith, and another one is emphasizing works. Some emphasize doctrinal facts, and others are practical in nature. Is there not room for both of us, James? In other words, this objector is saying you like theology, you're more theoretical, and, and you, on the other hand, prefer to talk about faith in that first item. But on the other hand, I'm kind of more of a practical heart. We're both Christians, but we just have different emphasis. In other words, one person has only faith 
and the other person has only works. Both, according to this objector, are legitimate. So to the objector, there's no necessary connection then between faith and works. And clearly, that's an attack on the position that James has just declared in 2, 14 through 17. James, however, comes on the scene and says that view is bogus. In other words, faith and works cannot exist separately, if you will. Okay, Faith and works, James says, are inseparable. In other words, as one has said, that faith and works are like the wings of a bird. There can be no real life, no flight with a single wing, whether works or faith. But when the two are pumping together in concert, their owner soars through the heavens. And so faith and works, neither is authentic without the other. So that was the objector's contention. But look what James said to that. And I believe he speaks right after that quotation mark, verse 18. Show me, he says in verse 18, your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith, he says, by my works. So I take you here from the contention of the objector now to the challenge to the objector. James says, I challenge you to examine your faith without the, what? Works. In other words, any division between faith and works is impossible. They are inseparable. James will argue that the works prove that one has faith. Now, beloved, Grace Church in the Valley, we both clearly know that James is not teaching salvation by works. James has already communicated. Look back in verse 18 of chapter 1. Do you see that? Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth. So James affirms here, however, that saving faith goes beyond just a verbal confession. And so he takes up his own challenge. And James says this, I will show you my faith by my works. That's what he says. Since I cannot see faith, James says, in the heart, exhibit your faith or literally, show your faith through your works. Do you remember years ago in the movie, The Invisible Man, that the only way for people to know he was in the room was if he moved things around? And in that movie, a book would float off the table, a coffee cup would be picked up, a depression would appear on the couch as he sat down, Listen, in the same way, the faith that we profess is often invisible. It's often intangible. And one cannot see the faith that is inside the heart, but you can see the faith in visible works. And so when you cannot visibly see the heart, you can see demonstrated those works in the life. And works accompany, do they not? A genuine faith. Someone has said that genuine faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can see their results. Fair. Now, beloved, James is not disputing whether faith saves, but rather what he's doing is opposing that a fruitless profession can indeed 
save. If, if you can say it, but not live it, if you can verbalize it, but not show it, then it might not even be the real thing. Two men were arguing over this very point of faith and deeds while they were, row, while they were being rowed across a river. And as these two men are you know, debating faith and works, the oarsman was a Christian, and he asked whether he could join in the discussion. And given permission, he said, let us assume that one of these oars is faith and the other one is deeds or works. We'll take, he said, the, the works or out of the water and just use faith. And as a result, the boat went around in circles. And after a while, he said, perhaps um, we have got the wrong one. We'll put the faith oar in the boat and just use deeds or works. And the result, of course, was the same. They went around in circles. Finally, he put both oars in the boat together, and they made a beeline for the shore. Listen, beloved, in a very similar way, our faith has precisely that kind of balance. Only the person, the man or woman, with faith and works, working in perfect harmony, is heading in the right direction. And again, I'm just thinking of that statement by Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then Jesus said that I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, he says, lawlessness, which is sin. So James here challenges the objector regarding his orthodox thinking. In fact, you know this statement. Look what he does in his argument. Look down at 2.19 now. He says to this, in this challenge, he says, you believe that God is one. He says, you do well. Then he says, and you know the statement, even the demons believe and what? Shudder. James says, you believe God is one. And there's probably no question that he's referring to that part in Deuteronomy 6.4 that the Orthodox Jews recited all the time. And you know it in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And this scripture was taught at a very early age and repeated daily. And James says, you do well. He says, but understand. Think about this statement. It's powerful. The demons also believe and shudder. In other words, correct doctrine by itself does not save. In fact, you remember in Deuteronomy 6 4 that the declaration made is the Lord our God is the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Immediately that statement is followed by Another portion in Deuteronomy 6, 5, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So as you put those two together, confession of God's oneness, divorced from obedience, is not a valid faith. Or to put it another way, to give intellectual assent to truth, void of a lifestyle of fruitful living is to be deceived. So it's quite a thought that James gives that orthodox doctrine 
is no guarantee of one's eternal salvation. In fact, the professing believer who does not accompany that faith by works is worse off than the demons for even the demons, what? Believe and they shudder. In other words, what's James saying? Well, demons know that there is one God. They know that. The people know that, maybe in this text. But listen, the demons also know that. But while they're in the presence of God, they shudder is the word. The Greek word, it just means to tremble. And that term denotes terror, which literally, in other places, makes one's hair stand on end. In other words, it refers to an uncontainable, uncontrollable, violent uh, shaking from extreme fear. In fact, you say they shudder. Can, can you show me that? Yeah, sure. L- look over in the Gospel of Mark. You've certainly seen these texts before. Let me remind you of a few of them. The Gospels are so very important for us. And in Mark chapter 124... Uh, You remember that he goes in and he heals on the Sabbath a man. And it says there in Mark 1, 23, immediately, can you imagine if you were in the synagogue that day? There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. Can you imagine if you're just listening to Jesus teach and in comes this man who's filled, if you will, with a demonic spirit, and he's shrieking, crying out. What does he say? He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Is that just not the expression in the New Testament? Demonic people or demons filled in people's life, in the presence of God, know who He is. But we'd all agree they're absolutely not saved. But they absolutely know who He is. In fact, look over to Mark chapter 3. There He encountered other demons. In Mark chapter 3, the people were following Him all over. They were pressing around Him. For in 3.10, He had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Can you just imagine that? I mean, they're not just kind of looming in the background. Wow, I guess he can do that. They're getting in His presence, dropping, crying out, You are the Son of God. Look over two more chapters in chapter 5. You remember this guy, um, the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes? He stepped off the boat in Mark 5, 2. He met him out of the tombs was a man with an unclean spirit. Now watch this in 5.3 of Mark. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. In other words, they put him in a chain and they couldn't hold this guy. Verse 4, and he had been 
often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a pitiful condition that this man was in bondage to. And when, verse 6, he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and cried out with a loud voice saying, what do we have to do? What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not, what? Torment me. I mean, he knew exactly who Christ was. So James would say, hey, you do well. You believe God is one. It's good. He says, but recognize this, that even the demons believe and shudder. Listen, there are no atheists among the demons. Demons are monotheist. They understand there's one God. They believe there's one God. They believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the perfect life. They believe in the substitutionary death. They believe in the glorious resurrection. They believe in His certain return. But all that knowledge of God cannot save the demons, nor can it save you without genuine faith. So even the demons have an artificial confession. They're not saved. They certainly don't obey God. They're working against God. We know that, but they understand. In fact, hell will be populated by those who are monotheistic and even orthodox. Barnhouse, the great preacher, said there will be enough fundamentalists in hell to have a convention. Pretty scary, isn't it? In other words, he's putting faith and works. they got to go together. They, 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 you got to join them. It's not that the works save you, but where there's genuine saving faith in the root, it will lead to the fruit of a productive productive, uh, effectual life. In fact, do you remember Simon the sorcerer? Kind of scary. In fact, look over in Acts just for a second. In Acts chapter 8, there, the Simon the sorcerer, it's an incredible passage. And scary though, because there the apostles were preaching and teaching. And if you can just jump in there with me in Acts 8, 13, even... Now, you can read the the part before this. It's quite a statement. Even Simon himself believed, and this was a guy who was showing magic early in the verse, but when he heard the message, he believed. Look at 8.13. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So this guy believed, we think, and then he's baptized, as it says, and he was seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed with Simon. And when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God and sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they had laid hands on them. And in verse 17, they received the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure when they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. It doesn't say that here, but I'm sure it was like Acts 2. They spoke in tongues. They, they heard people 
speaking in another language, which is what tongues was in Acts chapter 2. But look at this in verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hand, he offered them ah, money, saying, Give me the power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart shall be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the hand of iniquity. Wow, or in the bond of iniquity. What's amazing there is this guy believed. This guy was baptized, but this guy had another spirit in him. Listen, James is arguing and saying confession is not enough to save you apart from spiritual fruit for even the demons believe and shudder. So he pushes us on from the contention of the objector to the challenge to the objector to thirdly, the correction to the objector. It's there. Look at verse 20 as you turn back there now. In James, he says in 2.20, do you want to be shown? Look what he says, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is what? Useless. Do you want to be shown? It's, in other words, it's sad that there are many who do not want to recognize this truth. Some live, if you will, in a fool's paradise, priding themselves on their bogus faith when they are completely oblivious to the nature of true saving faith. So he says here in 2.20, do you want to be shown common? Then look, I mean, he's just right in our face, is he not? But he, he loves the people, right? He says, you foolish person. He's speaking to the objector, is he not? And literally, when he says, you foolish person, he means to, it's saying, you empty man. He said, do you not understand? And then look at his final statement, that faith apart from works is useless. Listen, profession void of obedience is useless. It's sterile is the word. It's barren. It is foolish. It's like saying, I golf when you don't golf, okay? Or it's like saying, I'm a chef when you don't even cook. Or like a field that you somewhat claim, but it remains follow and it bears no fruits. Or it's like having money that yields no interest. James just very clearly says here, if you can see it, look at it again in verse 20, that faith apart from works is, what does he say? Useless. In fact, I actually think it's a play on words. If you look at verse 20 again, he says, faith apart from works is useless. That, that word useless, it would, you could also translate it this way, that faith that has no works does not work. <laughs> That's really what he's saying. It's useless. Or literally, faith that does not have works does not work. It is an unproductive, barren, dead faith unable to save. So here James, in verse 20, restates that thesis in 2.14. Can that faith save him? And the answer that he's going to give is no. It is a dead, bogus faith. 
Luther, you know, who at the beginning of his life struggled with James, but he, he got on board. But remember when Luther said this, and he's speaking about this. Listen to how he said it. Oh, it is a living, quote, quick, mighty thing, this faith. It does not ask whether good works are to be done. But before the question could be asked, it does them and is always doing them. He who does not these good works is a man without faith. Luther said faith is living. It's a restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. He says we are not saved, and we understand this, by works. He said, but if there are no works, there must be, he said, there must be something amiss with faith. Luther said it is impossible to separate works from faith as it is to separate heat from light from the fire. So I finish and just say, then how can I know, Scott? How, how, can, I, how can I really know if I've got the real thing? I don't want you to walk out of here. I mean, maybe it's, it's partly good if some of you say, man, I've got I to gotta take a look. Do I got, do I got the real thing? That, that's actually far from a hurtful thing. That's a, a good thing. I'd rather be sure. I mean, I, I don't know if I told you, I uh, came to Christ at 14, but man, I just, as a teenager, at 15, probably 16, 17, I, I had some doubts and I didn't know. And as I look back, I thought, no, I genuinely came to Christ at 14. But there were things that entered into my mind apologetically. Things, could I really follow Christ? Could I really follow the apostles' teaching? Was the word really the word of God? It was good because it, it brought me to my knees and it forced me to read the scripture and it affirmed me and so forth. But I've included a little list for you there on the back. This list is not mine. It was a list that I actually had photocopied and pasted into one of my Bibles. It's a list that comes out of John MacArthur's study Bible. And there's just two lists, and you can see them. They'll come up on the screen, but they're there on the notes. Evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. In other words, this could either prove it, nor it doesn't prove it or disprove it. You could have a visible morality. And quoted there is Matthew 19, that's the rich young ruler. I mean, that guy was visible, visibly moral. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. He says to Jesus, I kept all these things from my youth up. Very visible, very moral. He probably fit real well in Kingsburg, but he didn't know the Lord. So you can have a visible morality, and that could be a sign of genuine faith, but it might not be. You could have an intellectual knowledge of Christ, and I'm thinking Romans 1.21, even though they knew God, they did not what? Honor Him as God. Or even though they knew God in Romans 1, they did not give Him glory. You could have religious involvement. It doesn't mean you're saved. Okay, that's the passage there of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, all of them preparing to meet the bridegroom, all presumably in that parable, spiritual people. You can be involved in active ministry. That doesn't prove nor disprove for even the the people in Matthew 7 that we've quoted. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, those aren't flakes. Those aren't just common people. Those are the religious people. Those are the people who serve Christ. Those are the people who say, Lord, what? Lord. They don't just know him as Lord. They've got a double designation. But they're, even though they say that, they're, they're not in Christ. You could have conviction of sin and not be saved. 
Some conviction of sin certainly proves that. That's a reference there in Acts 24 to Felix. He used to like to call for Paul. He used to like to hear him preach. But after he heard him preach, he sent him away. But he, Paul was talking about righteousness and self-control. And he liked to hear it. doesn't mean that Felix was saved. In fact, you would think that he wasn't. You could have some kind of um, assurance there listed. What's that? The scribes had that. But Jesus kept saying to them, woe to you, scribes. You could even have a time of decision. You say, well, what is that? Well, I look back at the time when the Bible never talks about a time. And that passage in Luke 8 is the, certainly the one you know. It's about the soil and the seeds and so forth, the seeds that went into the soil. And the soil seed came into the soil. It came up. It sprang up quickly. It was, came, came, brought great joy. But then the worries of the world, the, the desire for riches, and entered in and it choked the word. You could have an immediate joy to the word of God or look back at some decision, but that doesn't either prove nor disprove one's faith. But look at the second category. Here is the fruit or proof of authentic true faith. It's a love for God. A love for God. Do you love Him? I didn't say that you're perfect or that I'm perfect, but in your heart, do you just want to love Him? Do you just, you just want to come before Him? You want to honor Him? Not with utter perfection, but is the direction, is the heart of your life. This is fruit, that you do love Him. And where you fall short, you want to be more like Him. And you're in that battle that Paul talks about, but you do love Him. And then here, secondly, there's a repentance from sin. A true believer repents. And what we mean by repent there is you don't just intellectually grasp it. You repent so that repent means to do a 180, right? In other words, you love Him and then you repent even in coming to Christ and in staying in Christ and you do a 180 and you want to just continue in that lifestyle of repentance. There's genuine, thirdly, there, humility. You're trying to live out the Beatitudes, not with perfection, but you're broken over your sin. You're mourning over your sin. You're thirsting after righteousness. Humility is part of your life. There, there's a devotion to God's glory. These are the real marks. In other words, you wake up in the day and you want to give Him honor. You want to give Him glory. If you're a young lady, you want that relationship you're in to give Him glory. If you're a young man, you don't date the dead. You date a girl who loves God because if you love God, you want to give glory to God. And two people together can give Him glory better than apart. And because you're committed to the devotion of God's glory, you want to honor Him above anything and everything, and everybody. In fact, you don't even necessarily care what the world thinks because you wake up and you want to honor Him. And certainly not perfection, but it's the desire of your heart. There's continual prayer before the Lord. Lord, make me like you. There's selfless love that we spoke about in 1 John. There's a separation from the world in James 4. I'm, wait till we get there. You might want to miss that week when he says, you adulterous people. I mean, think James doesn't pull any punches. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? And whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But listen, one of the ways that you show that you love Christ is you don't want to do what the world does. You don't want to watch what the world watches. You don't want to listen to what the world listens to. You don't want to run with the world's people. You have a separation from the world. You'd rather be with the people of God. You'd rather be in the house of God. You would say like the psalmist, one day in His presence is better than a thousand days elsewhere. 
doesn't mean, again, perfection, but you want to live like Christ. You want to model Christ. There, and another thing, you're spiritually growing. You are coming before Him and growing, and you're being equipped, and you're abiding in Him, and you're obedient in your living. Those are the fruit of the proofs of authentic faith. As you look at your life, as you think, am I still on live? Can you hear me? I don't know why I felt like it was on. Um, As you look at your life, these things aren't with perfection. But is the direction of your life those? And if they are, then they're going to render you neither useless or fruitless in your knowledge of God. And so listen, take inventory. But listen, as we go forward, don't you want your children, don't you want your grandchildren embracing this truth? Listen, your presence and my presence yesterday, we, we know that doesn't save us. I mean, we know that. I mean, I, I trust you're there because you love God, right? In fact, here's the motivation, and I'm all done here. It's a prayer. It's, not, it's a statement by Thomas Brooks. What's the motivation to please him? He said, Christ, Thomas Brooks, had freed you from all your enemies, from the curse of the law, from the damnatory power of sin, from the wrath of God, from the sting of death, from the torments of hell. But what is the end design of Christ in doing these great and marvelous things for his people? Is it not that we should throw off duties of righteousness? It is not, he says, that we should throw off duties of righteousness and holiness but that our hearts may be more free and sweet in all holy duties and heavenly services. He says, ah, souls, I know no such arguments to work. He says, you to a lively and constant performance of all heavenly services like those that are drawn from the consideration, he said, from the great and glorious things that Christ has done. There's the motive, amen? We serve him out of a joyful heart. Listen, do you love him? Do you know him? If you don't know him, Paul might say to each of us, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. And listen, where's the balance with your children hearing their little hearts express faith in Christ and wanting to affirm that and put your arms around them And then at the same time, wanting to watch that profession live itself out in a lifestyle, not with perfection, but with direction. We pray that the Lord gives us the right balance to share their joy and at the same time to watch them as they go forward because time will tell with all of us. Amen.